Hello, and you do welcome. What you gotta do, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm the worst. <laughs> Take two, coming in in three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we talk everything about anything, where we make doing your homework actually fun. We are educators connecting popular media to academic ideas, and we're really excited to be talking about our theme today, which is grieving and loss. With me tonight, as always, are... Uh, Marissa Sullivan. Damn it. <laughs> you go first, Kaylee. <laughs> we are on the ball today. Uh, Kaylee Scouten. Data analyst and media analyst. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, and Martha Sullivan, and today I am an intense video game reviewer. Oh no, did somebody finish Mass Effect? What? No, I've just been combing through E3 press releases all day, buying video games for the library. Oh, cool. Uh, and I am uh, Pete Romberg. I'm a curriculum developer and writer, and not doing anything nearly as exciting as coming through E3 press releases. Um, exciting is certainly one word for it. <laughs> oh. Informative, perhaps. So, uh, before we get started talking about our actual topic, uh, it's only fair that we share with you, our viewers, our pop culture credentials. This is the part of the show where we uh, share the most recent thing that we've consumed in terms of pop culture. Not necessarily anything good, uh, simply the most recent that we have uh, consumed. Um, so, Kaylee, let's start with you. What was your most recent pop culture credential? I think I'm going to have to say, because I, I realized this right before we were recording, that I do not think that I've consumed anything super fun today, which is sad. Um, so I'm going to go with what but, I did yesterday, which was well, binge have you, watch. Have you, huh? have you consumed anything at all? Um. Um, these can also be negative reviews. I realized that we haven't true. actually ever done anything for the credentials portion where it was like, I didn't like this thing, which really just shows that we're all like very fine purveyors of pop culture. Oh, I'm the most fine. Slash that we are actively seeking out things that we want to share five minutes before the show starts. Yeah, uh, that okay. is me. Yes. Okay, then if we're going to go down that boat, I'm going to say the new trailer for the Frozen short that's coming out in November called Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Do tell. I saw a thing, I, I was going to say, I saw a thing on that on my Twitter, I think. It was released Tuesday morning. Um, it is very similar in style, if not more pretty than the previous movie as well as short um it's 22 minutes long and it will premiere before coco which i think is sort of an odd choice to put a short that long in front of a full-length movie it's 22 but minutes long it's 22 minutes long <laughs> so i love frozen but and i am very excited about coco that just means i'm not going to show up on time for that movie I just think it's a silly choice. Originally, it was supposed to be on ABC, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm, I'm a little cranky about it, but that's that's me. I'll get over it. I will say this. Um, I've got a friend, uh, uh, two friends. They have a two-and-a-half-year-old, 
and they just saw Frozen for the first time, and she absolutely loves Olaf more, like, as the most favorite character of Frozen. Um, yes. So having an all-Olaf, all-the-time segment of Frozen, 22 minutes seems really long, but the 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 Moloch machine that is Disney chose its its you know figure correctly uh, to make yeah. it all about Olaf. Yeah, and I'm okay with the Olaf thing. Like that's that's fine because he's hilarious. It's just the the schematics and the scheduling seems a little off to me, but that's cool. I'm also excited to see Coco. But and, and what is Coco? Okay, so. <laughs> Um, a Pixar movie. Ooh. Isn't it Pixar? I think it's Disney. But like John um, Lasseter but... probably. Google is telling me Google Google is telling me Disney Pixar. So Okay. So then they did get back together. I know they were like broken up. It's it's a it's a wild relationship they've got. But but it's the next um Disney Pixar flick. Cool. Yes, I believe it is Day of the Dead themed. I think so ish it is definitely hispanic um in nature um god i'm trying to describe it without well that's i'll i'll watch the um the trailer when we get done with here and we'll post it on the blog for anyone who's interested sounds good yeah for sure cool. it looks pretty and colorful and musical and i'm i'm very excited about it and also pixar yeah. does good stuff yeah land of the dead not day of the dead yeah. Despite his family's generation-old ban on music, Miguel dreams of becoming an accomplished musician like his idol Ernesto de la Cruz. Desperate to prove his talent, Miguel finds himself in the land of the dead. Along the way, he meets charming trickster Hector, and together they set off on an extraordinary journey to unlock the real story behind Miguel's family history. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, we can also post a link to that trailer in our blog post later as well. Cool. Uh, Martha, other than reading that Wikipedia entry right now, what is the most recent <laughs> bit of pop culture that you have consumed? Uh, so I was going to talk about the two hours of Scrubs that I watched while I was watching the homework for tonight. Uh, but then I realized that that would make me look like an irresponsible podcaster. So what I'm actually going to talk about are the Polygon series of videos, which I have been watching like a crazy person, uh, called The Awful Squad. Oh. Where some of the, where teams of four Polygon employees, and they rotate in and out uh, who is playing, but they play Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is a 30 minute survival game. Uh, 100 people all log into the same. Uh, like the same match. Um, and then it's like the Hunger Games crossed with Battle Royale. So Ooh. it's just fight to the death, last man standing. Um, the Awful Squad is, as promised, fairly terrible at it. Uh, but it's basically the, there's streams of these guy of these Polygon employees playing uh, Battlegrounds. Um, if anyone is familiar, so Griffin McElroy and his brother Justin show up quite frequently. Uh, Nick Robinson, who did Carboys with uh, Griffin, is one of the main people. And then Pat and Russ are two other Polygon employees who do videos for them. I'm not as familiar with their work, but they are also uh, members of the Awful Squad. 
The videos are very long because each match is about a half an hour and their streams usually include uh, several matches. So they oh, tend okay. to run like 90 minutes. Uh, but they're very relaxing for some reason. Really? It's because I was thinking about this and I think it's because I have no investment in whether or not they survive. Because <laughs> it is entertaining to me either way. So... I, I don't feel anxious because they are anxious. I'm just sort of letting their antics wash over me. Um, yeah, but it's it's fun. They're, they're funny guys. Uh, you can find them all on YouTube on the Polygon video channel. Uh, it, it is a game where I think that if I played, and if I played with friends of mine, I would no longer have friends. Uh, oh, but no. I, I can watch other people play. I was actually just talking up Adventure Zone to Ronnie, to my friend Ronnie. Yeah. I was like, you need to get on this McElroy train, man. And this is the part of the show where we desperately shill for the McElroys to pick us up and add us to their uh, ongoing podcast empire. Well, actually, they're part of somebody else's podcast network empire. But yeah, I think... Cumulatively, between the three of them, I, I've made an estimate on our show before, but I think they do about 827 podcasts. And now a live TV show. True, which is really funny. <laughs> um, so uh, so what, what was the name of that um, video series again on Polygon? The Oh, it's called... Uh, Awful Squad? A Awful, yeah, Awful Squad. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, check out Awful Squad and all the McElroy media empire. Um, for myself, I was all prepared to talk about The Leftovers, which is an HBO series. It just wrapped up its third and final season. Um, the premise is, it's, it's by Damon Lindelof, uh, who did Lost, and he writes, um, like, the Star Trek movies. Um, the premise is a... Um, what's that, uh, um, Christian disappearance thing, uh, end of days, um, rapture. rapture. It's a rapture situation, so, like, um, 2% of the world's population suddenly disappears, we're three years later dealing with the leftovers. Um, everything I've heard about this show is that the first season is an eat-your-vegetables situation, and the third season is some of the best things ever committed to television. Um, so I just finished the third episode of the first season. I thoroughly enjoyed the third episode, which mostly focused on Christopher Eccleston, um, mm. who's delightful. That's a name I haven't heard in a real long time. Yeah, he's the Tenth Doctor, and, uh, also... Ninth Doctor. Ninth, ninth doctor, doctor, thank you, he's the Ninth Doctor. Um... I don't even like Doctor Who, and I know that, Pete, <laughs> Um, yeah, he's the Ninth Doctor, he's fantastic in this as, like, a... a clergy member in a time when basically everyone has lost their faith because who knows what's going on there was a rapture event um that all being said my actual most recent pop culture credential is plis Annet earth with snoop dog which is him <laughs> narrating scenes from planet earth and Amazing. the specific scene that he's narrating is the one that went viral a couple months ago about the baby iguana escaping all the snakes. Um, this was on Jimmy Kimmel, I think, last night, or it started popping up on my uh, like Twitter feed today, so it was recent. Um, 
Snoop narrating a baby iguana running away from a bunch of snakes trying to eat it is phenomenal. The video itself is great, like without Snoop, and then Snoop just brings it to the next level. So, um, plays Anna to Earth with Snoop Dogg baby iguanas escaping a snake. That's my pop culture, my true pop culture credential. Um, leftovers, I'm not sure my opinions on it yet because I'm only three episodes into the season that everyone says is the one that you need to watch to get to the good stuff, which is not okay. like the best place to be. I am super glad that you already sent me that video title in our group chat because I would not even know where to start with Plizanet. Oh, well, it's like planet and then you snoopify it. And so you got some Z's in there. So it's Plizanet. Now, snoopify, does that have like a generator? Is there an internet generator to snoopify uh, language? I would be shocked if there wasn't. And if there's not, internet, get on this. Dude. Dude, no, there totally was one, because I remember there being one back when I was, like, in eighth grade. All right, so get in the Wayback Machine, Internet Archives, yeah. that. Going back in the TARDIS, bringing it around. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, uh, well, this is the awkward segue from Plizanet and Snoop Dogg to Death and Grieving. Um, the topic... Maybe if we get... I was just going to say, maybe if we get super cool someday, we'll do a little, like, segment break there. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, <laughs> our topic today, which I chose, is loss and grief and the grieving process. Um, I'll be honest, I sort of... I, I did this the wrong way, wherein I backwards planned it from the homework that I wanted to assign. Um, I'm going to get to that last, I think, but I am going to start by signposting where this conversation is going to go. I have four big discussion questions that I want to make sure that we hit by the end of the episode. So first, I want to be exploring how media and pop culture can help people deal with loss, both as consumers of that pop culture and as creators of that media and pop culture. Uh, second, I want to uh, explore the question of how do people respond to those who are grieving, those who are going through loss? What responsibilities do we have to those who are um, experiencing a tragedy? Uh, three, I want to talk about how do media portrayals of grief and loss align with quote-unquote typical experiences. I know that there's really no such thing as a typical experience for this, but we'll get more into that when we get to that part of the uh, show. And finally, um, I want to uh, talk about does knowing the story behind a highly personal work of media, uh, in this case specific to grief and loss, but this could be relevant to any sort of highly personal media, personal for any reason, uh, does knowing that story change the way that we view that media, the way that we think about that media or assess it? Um, so that's where we're going to be going in the conversation today. Uh, before we start that, though, we're just going to do a really quick whip around of our three sources, our three homework assignments. Um, we'll do a, a really quick summary of them and then a really quick how the other two people thought about it. So, um, Kaylee, we'll start with you. Um, how about give us a really, really quick rundown on your homework assignment, and then um, we'll talk about what we thought about it. Okay. Can I have two seconds? No. Never. <laughs> it, it might have been a while since we've all consumed these homeworks. So there's that. I, 
Kaylee, I can go first if you need a real quick sec. Yeah, um, okay. that'd be great. Sure. So my homework for you all was the 2016 young adult novel titled Spontaneous by Aaron Starmer. Uh, Spontaneous is a novel about Mara Carlyle, who is a senior in high school, uh, just starting her senior year when her classmates start spontaneously combusting, uh, and no one knows why. And and specific- that's it. That's the book. <laughs> Specifically, it seems like they're not spontaneously combusting, like bursting into flames. They're just like exploding or popping into yes. viscera. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, in summary, the book is about how she and her various classmates deal with this horrifying event. Um, I love this book. This book I'm was... so glad. <laughs> it, it, it's well established on the show that young adult lit is not my, my go-to, but this book gripped me from the get-go and yeah. didn't let go. Um, I mean, the opening, I have ne- the, the opening I page say... is like somebody exploded a math class, like, what Martha described, it doesn't spoil anything beyond page one. So it's really well written. It, the, it's really well paced and plotted. Yeah. The idea is fascinating. I have never read anything quite like this book. Um, it was one of the reasons I wanted to uh, assign it. Um, it was one of it was my credential pick a couple weeks ago. If you guys remember that, I was in the middle of it at that point, I think. Yes. Um it's just it's just such a strange little book (laughs) i think one thing that i like about it is that the book is written in such a way where it like grips it it feels like you are in her head listening and watching as these events are unfolding and i know like i mean duh it's a first person perspective but it just felt really real and i felt like she was very human in the way that it she would latch on to details that you would as a human and not necessarily everything like she didn't go into the author didn't go into painstaking detail describing every single little thing it was just the things that you would pick up as a human going about your everyday life with these weird super messed up things happening around you I, well and i think I totally starmer agree. yeah as a young adult librarian i read a lot of ya and one of the things that bothers me about um, or one of the one of the traps I think that authors fall into a lot is writing teens that sound like tiny adults, and I thought that Starmer's teens talked like teens. Like I I've had conversations with with kids who sound like Mara. Yeah. Um, I thought he nailed the voice really well. I clearly paid no attention to, to the author's name because I was convinced this was a woman author. Um he did a great job at writing a, a um, teenage girl first person perspective. And I think that Kayla, you're absolutely right. That a big reason it was so gripping to me was it felt so authentic. Um, Obviously the situation is hopefully impossible, but it it felt like an authentic response to it um, all the way through. Yeah, and that was one of the th- one. Of, that was the other big reason that I wanted to assign it, was because I felt like he nails the way. Like I could see teens reacting to this situation in exactly this way. Like this book covers a lot of different methods of handling grief and of handling like 
a horrible situation and I could see teens falling into absolutely any one of them. I mean, you, you, you have, and Pete, I don't know how specific you want to get right now. Um, but like you have kids falling into substance abuse, you have kids, you know, sort of spiraling, uh, pretty sharply downwards. You have kids who are, uh, like desperately trying to pretend that everything is normal. Uh, you just, you get kids all over the map with it, which felt very real to me. Yeah, I thought that if we weren't going to be assigning this for something about loss and grief, it could easily also be assigned for an episode about um, something like post-traumatic stress um, or dealing with, with with just any sort of horrific situation, uh, loss or grief related or not. Um, because you're right, I, it sort of runs the gamut of presenting people reacting to it in all these different ways. All right. Kaylee, ready to talk about yours? I think I am. Great. <laughs> so, hello. My homework this week word is um, season five, episodes 20 and 21 of Scrubs. Um, what these, this is kind of like a mini arc, as Scrubs is very apt to do, um, where... JD is on a mission to have lunch with his mentor. Mentor, yes, thank you. His mentor, Dr. Cox. Um, and Dr. Cox is typical, doesn't want to have anything to do with poor JD. Um, and they m end up running into one of their ex patients at a convenient mart who they cannot stand. Because she tends to be a little bit of a hypochondriac and, in their words, annoying. Um, and she shows up at the hospital later, and it turns out that she passes away. And initially, JD and Cox think it is as a result of an overdose. But it turns out that it was because of rabies, after they've already split her organs amongst several other patients. And after the death of those patients, Cox takes it really hard. And enters into like a severe grief depression cycle. Um, and JD and the other members of the staff try and get him out of that. Uh, so, funny story about this. Um, I thought I got the numbers of the episodes mixed up. So I watched the episode... I watched what should have been the second episode I watched, and then the one immediately after that. Oh, no. I did, so... too. So I'm, gonna, I'm, like, sitting here like, I don't remember <laughs> the rabies part, but I remember the I death mean, I spiral. Have, I've seen Scrubs often enough that I knew where we were going. I mean, actually, it's kind of interesting that we did that because the arc continues into that third episode. Yes, it does. Yeah, um, which is why I didn't which was one of the things... when I just watched those yeah. two, <laughs> right? Um, but one of the things that I think that this uh, that these three episodes do really well is showing, um, and this continues into that third episode, that grief recovery is not a linear process. Um, so you have like the episode where it's the focus, 
But then it also continues to be something that Dr. Cox deals with yeah. as the show goes on. One thing that I liked a lot about it that um, I, I don't know if this continued as the show progressed. I, I've watched a lot of Scrubs, but not a lot of it linearly. Um, and I know that I haven't seen this episode or like this series of episodes. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting was, and I guess the, the, the second of the three episodes, um, JD is really hard on Cox for the for showing up to work drunk while he is in his uh, depression spiral. And on the one hand, you can have a lot of empathy or sympathy for Cox and be like, well, yeah, like he's he's really depressed. He's struggling like that's we all could be there. Uh, but on the other hand, he's a doctor and showing up to work drunk could literally kill more people. And so you I, I at least felt a lot for JD with his, like, being very upset and furious with Cox for doing that. Um, and that's something that I don't think we see often in portrayals of uh, the grief process and grieving, but of how that um, can impact, you know, like, your life around you, but also the lives of others and, and the way it can lead to you making choices that you might not otherwise make or that you might regret later. Um, and I was a little disappointed that in just this triptych of episodes uh it didn't really go deeper into that um although who knows it might it might you know come back up later in that season of scrubs no i think that's a good po i think that's a good point um it starts to kind of hold dr cox responsible but i think that the show is mostly interested it, it is not super interested in not vilifying but like it is more interested in having Dr. Cox recover from that eventually and showing that process than it is in holding him accountable for that one moment. Totally. Because at the end of the day, it's a yeah. comedy. Yeah. Like, you, you can't have this guy who's been an interesting, you know, dick, but also funny guy and, and likable character for five seasons all of a sudden become a villain. Yeah. <laughs> like, that. that's not what the show is doing true um i don't think it needed to have him become a villain but maybe some like i mean i guess they sort of obliquely reference him taking additional time off um but something to sort of i don't know to more directly address his destructive spiral mm -hmm. yeah i don't yeah i, think I don't that, know I, I think that's a good way to put that <laughs> yeah um Cool. Well, for, for my homework, I assigned, I, I did something very different, and like I said, I kind of backwards planned the episode based on this homework assignment. We'll see whether that was a good decision or not as we get into our main discussion questions. Um, what I did was I, I had you all listen to an album by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. It is uh, their most recent album, The Skeleton Tree. And I, I had you go into it blind and just listen to it once all the way through and then read the Wikipedia entry and the Pitchfork review for the album to get context for the um, basically the background of the recording of the album and also to get some critical uh, exposure to what people were saying about the album when it came out. And then I had you listen to the album a second time um, with all that information in your mind. So... Um, not only am I curious what you thought about the album and how it connected to our theme, but I'm really curious what you thought about that process as a way to 
uh, experience pop culture and experience media. Uh, well, first, Pete, do you want to give us the rundown on the story of the album? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Nick Cave is an amazing musician. He's been making music for like going on 30 years or something Australian. Um, he's done scores for movies. He's had a, a number of very critically well-received albums. Um, and as he was beginning production of this, his most recent album, um, his teenage son died in a freak accident by falling off some cliffs uh, in France. So the entire, the, the, many of the songs were written before this accident occurred, but the entire album was recorded afterwards. And it is a very sorrowful album. Nick, Nick Cave stuff generally tends towards those, like, he, he, he does dark, Aussie Gothic sort of stuff, not not capital G Gothic, but sort of lower G Gothic. Um, <laughs> but this is definitely his most plaintive uh, album, at least in a long while. Um, so thoughts? I was not familiar with Nick Cave's work uh, before I listened to this album, so it was the not only the first time I'd listened to this album, but the first time I'd listened to um, any of his work. Have, Same have for seen, me. Um, have you seen The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? No. Okay, he does the soundtrack for that. Never mind, moving on. It's a Brad Pitt film. I was, I was <laughs> going to say, say that title again, and then ask yourself if that is a movie that I would watch. <laughs> it's possible. It was like, it's a Western. Brad Pitt's in it. It was sort of a big deal-ish ten years ago. True. No, I remember when it came out. I just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. Uh but anyway, so I listening to it twice was rough because it's a deeply it's not only a deep bummer of an album, um but it's not really the kind of music I enjoy. Although I did think that I mean it, it's it's very mournful. Um, regardless of what you know about kind of what's happening to Cave as he's writing it, I mean, you, you can tell that it's a sorrowful album. Um, I, I don't know that I got any of the specifics without the context after reading about it. Um, but I mean, mourning is coming out of every note in that. <laughs> and and I'd say I don't like I I've listened to this album approximately 30 times and I can't find specific instances of him referencing the tragedy that occurred to him but it, it, it yes as you say it, it is definitely a incredibly mournful and sorrowful album I don't think it needs to be specific to be effective no um and I do wonder if, and Pete, stop me if you don't want to get into this quite yet, um, if the act of writing this was less meant to tell a story and more as a, a function of catharsis so for him. The, the one caveat there is that part of it was already written before it occurred, but all of the recording happened afterwards. Um, so that's part of it. 
and the other part is exactly what I want to be getting into later. So. Well, I did notice that... Sorry, I agree a lot with what Martha said. Um, this this wasn't typically my um, style of music, and you can definitely hear like every, every single... Like, almost pain that he's dealing with in the music. I did find it interesting to note, though, that, like, in I think it was the... One of the articles that you had linked, not the Wikipedia article, had mentioned that he typically deals a lot with tragedy and grief in his albums. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time that this was a more personal... Um experience or more yeah I guess more personal to him and I thought that was sort of interesting that it that it happened that way I I kind of think of him as the Australian pop artist version of um, Tom Waits where they're both sort of like the troubadours of the downtrodden and so a lot of their songs are depressing and about people who are struggling. Um, but you're right that up until this album, everything Nick Cave has done has been more um, cerebral and certainly not personal. Uh, he's got a great song about uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, um, which is, you know, about as cerebral and not personal as you can get. Um <laughs> So, Pete, I guess as somebody who is familiar with his music, I would ask you, is there a substantive difference in this album compared to the rest of his work? If grief is sort of a um, continuing theme in what he writes, is this album different? Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say that grief is necessarily part of a continuing theme that he writes. I think that sort of his, he has sort of a, a, downbeat plaintive voice sort of to begin with and will default to more haunting songs or sounds naturally but even with all of that included um the first time i heard this album i could tell there was a lot of pain behind it and there was a lot of sorrow behind it more so even than he normally would do um perhaps in the show notes um i and in in the podcast i'll post a couple links to previous songs of his to sort of give a nice comparison where you'll get sonically it's very similar but the mood of it feels very different um this feels much more like a wounded animal than somebody sort of telling an interesting but depressing story um i guess what did you guys think about the (laughs) the the actual structure of the way i did the homework other than uh, the music isn't quite your cup of tea um, did you think that the listen, read, gain more knowledge, consume again process was, um, effective? Was it useful? Did it bring anything to the table? Yes, I loved yeah. it. I was going to say, absolutely. Um, because, yeah, listening to it without context, um, or rather knowing, okay, starting over regardless of where the album was at in development when cave's son died it was clearly 
an influence on the album moving forward after that point. Completely. Um, and so listening to the album first, not knowing that, I mean, you can appreciate, or I guess my appreciation for it sonically didn't change, but I didn't understand it before knowing what the context was because it is not specific. Like there's no song in there that is like, this is the story of this horrible thing that happened to me. Um, so without this, without the background story, it is a very sad, very mournful album with the context of the background story. It's a, it's a photo of grief. It's a snapshot of somebody um, grieving and, you know, part of their process i would argue part of his process of healing i i love that phrase uh snapshot of grief um i think that that's absolutely bang on mm-hmm. and i don't know if you get that without understanding where he was at when he wrote or when he finished the album and i also don't know that i i think that if you if you listen to it without knowing that i mean then then you get to it's a whole other process of appreciating the album because you get to hear it and form your own opinions about it which may have um you know it's like reading a review of a movie before you go see a movie somebody else's opinion of something might change how you feel about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think martha captured it pretty pretty much on the nose there with the um snapshot of grief because it was like almost on par with being with him as he was going through it mm-hmm. um this is a really good segue then to the fourth discussion question i want to get to um kind of shuffling the order but it's a it transitions well um it's the one that's less specific to grief um which is why i also want to sort of like carve it out separately does knowing the story behind any sort of personal work of media change the way we view it? And if so, um, you know, how we've already talked about it a little bit with this, um, is that something we should even be thinking about when we are consuming media and analyzing it? Um, this might be a bit of a <laughs> deconstructionist argument, yes or no, about whether authorial intent matters. Um, but I, I, we can do a really just quick touch on this topic because it is sort of tangential to the main topic, but um, it's the one that I was thinking about the most when I assigned this specific homework. Um, yeah, floor is open. I struggle with the question of authorial intent a lot <laughs> uh, because there are quite a few things that I enjoy that are by really problematic people. Um, I guess. <laughs> Please see all of Lovecraft. Well, yes, I actually. <laughs> I actually have sort of controversial feelings about Lovecraft because at this point I feel as though the genre has superseded the source material and we don't actually need to read the uh, original Cthulhu mythos to get to the good stuff. That's fair. Um, it's super racist. <laughs> yes. Just like all of it. Yeah. Um, I, I think for something like skeleton tree, I, I think it's a, Diff, slightly different issue than that of authorial intent because I think it's more of a context deepening the me- context deepening the meaning of media 
but you don't need you don't need the context to appreciate it. You're, you're, yeah, you're completely right, and I want to refine the question a little bit. Not so much authorial intent, okay. um, be, because you're right. Authorial intent could be it's an episode completely in and of itself. Um, I sort of want to get at more the idea of intent aside. If if a piece of media has a story behind it, does knowing that story matter for for consuming and analyzing um not enjoying but like mm. using or or reviewing critiquing um that media okay so this is actually i'm going to talk a little bit here if you guys don't mind because this is actually something that i have argued about in terms of modern art quite a bit Ooh. okay and my feeling on it is if i need that story like if that's if that background and that history is necessary to my understanding or enjoyment of the piece of art, then it is not strong enough. Then it is not a strong piece of art to be standing on its own. If, however, that understanding deepens my appreciation, but isn't necessarily or isn't necessary for my appreciation, um, then it's then it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I fell off a little bit there. Um, but my point is, I shouldn't need an essay to appreciate your work. Like, I should be able to, on any level, be able to appreciate it without necessarily needing to know, like, an essay of background material. Which is not to say that that essay of background material isn't, um, or is worthless or anything, but it should support rather than define the work. Did everything I say just make sense? Yes. Yeah. I'm I mean, using the, using the skeleton tree as an example, I think knowing the background story deepens my appreciation for where the album is coming from. I did not need it to appreciate the album for what it's doing. There's there's one other album that I absolutely adore that falls into that exact same category, and I was 50-50 between assigning that one and Skeleton Tree, and I think that what you just said makes a lot of sense. On the flip side, I tend to be the defender of nonsense modern art that is, you know, <laughs> that, that requires yeah. deep thought and additional reading to really get... Uh, I read all the plaques at the art museums and then go, hmm, yes, I see. <laughs> which is which is fine, but if if I need that plaque to appreciate the art, then the art itself has failed on some level. I always wish the plaques were more meaty. Well, and I'm not I'm not saying that you should never get information about the art that you're consuming. Like I think no. that knowing about the art and where it comes from is important, but I'm just yes. I don't think it should be necessary to appreciating it. Right. I, I get I get where you're coming from. And I'm trying to <clears throat> play devil's advocate of like a situation where you would need both, but I am like drawing a complete blank, so that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, my feeling has always been that if I need an essay next to your painting to understand the painting, the art has become the essay. Maybe it's both modern art. Yeah. 
what I'm getting for this from this before we segue to the the meat of the discussion is that Kaylee, you and I should go to uh, every museum and just spend an hour in a single like exhibit, looking reading yes, all the plaques. Yes, I want to go. Yes, I want to go to the museum, the um, Milwaukee Museum. Oh, it's really good. I haven't been yet. It's it's really nice. Come up to Milwaukee. We'll go to the art museum. Okay. Now all of our readers are going to, or all of our listeners are going to think that I'm like a pedantic person. <laughs> no, I, actually, your your argument is um, one that I, I hear a lot because it's Marin's argument. Um, you two are on the, are on the same page. Um, With most things, it turns out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Um, but but also in terms of art and, and things like this. Um, so segueing from that sort of, sidestep of how we consume art um let's get into the meat of the conversation which is specifically going to be about grief and the first question i want to get at for this is um just sort of talking about and we've talked about this a lot already um how can pop culture help people deal or grapple with loss or grief um both as consumers and creators Uh, martha you started talking about how skeleton tree feels very um cathartic from the artist's standpoint um and that sort of goes into the idea of art being like being cathartic for the creator of the pop culture um but then let's also discuss how the consumer can also get that catharsis or get that whatever they might be needing um from their pop culture consumption i think it's really interesting that we're doing this topic right after we talked about mental health because I think that the grieving process, how, how media portrays the grieving process is actually fairly similar to how I feel about it portraying different um, mental health issues and processes about going through that healing. Because um, over the three pieces of media that we picked, we get to see a bunch of different processes, a bunch of different grieving processes Um, And I think that one of the things that media can do for consumers is normalize the different ways that people go through that process. Uh, Additionally, you know, we have the skeleton tree, which in and of itself is a method of grieving. So it's not, it works on an even deeper level than that by not only um, potentially being somebody else's catharsis, but showing how an artist themselves uses their art to process their own grief. And and so when you're you're talking about that sort of normalizing, um, what what have we seen through these three pieces of media that 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 are sort of those more normalized? And I, I want to be very careful here. Um, I'm going to be talking about like typical experiences and normal experiences. Um, and of course, we all understand that everyone's individual experiences with grief are different. Um, we're actively not discussing the like five stages of grief because I don't want to necessarily fall into that box but maybe parts of those stages might come out um and and so recognizing that everyone's are different um media does tend to to focus on some more than others I think um so I I guess let's let's sort of grapple with those um how how does media and and what we've had his homework sort of portray as as typical experiences and how 
normal or typical might that be based on our own experiences? I was kind of leaning more towards like something like spontaneous, which shows a bunch of different people grappling with grief, grappling with fear, um, all handling it differently kind of normalizes the fact that there is no one way of going through grief. So while I agree with you, Pete, I think that pop culture tends to favor, I think that certainly pop culture tends to favor the self-destructive form of grieving. Yeah. Um, like Dr. Cox's spiral. I think that spontaneous actually does a good job in showing that there are many ways that people have of dealing and with healing and uh, with going through, going through that. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point that, and it's, it's kind of the answer I was fishing for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and both parts of that are the answer I was fishing for because I think that the the scrubs reaction of the self-destructive spiral is the one that the that pop culture loves the most. Um, and it's the one that the main character in spontaneous Mara. Yes, it's the one that she sort of falls into for a spell, at least um, during the she book. is also. Yeah, she is also just a self-destructive character. Yeah. Which is not to take anything away from what she goes through, but yeah, she is sort of the one that is primed to take on that particular role. Right. But she's not the only one. True. Um, yeah, drugs and sex and sort of falling into an orgiastic, like, we may die at any moment, so who cares what we do, is definitely a big... Uh, a big thing in that book. But I also think it's important to point out the kids who work through it by actually working through it. Like they're the one scene where Mara discovers like the secret class of standardized test takers. Yeah. Who are still like, we're going to take our SATs and, you know, deal with this by being productive students. <laughs> You know, they, they also, they are using, I think, slightly more productive methods of channeling their energy. Definitely. Yeah. Speaking of knowing, like, the background information on a media, I'm curious to know if the author ever mentioned if the spontaneous combustions were an allegory to anything else. An allegory? Uh, what do you mean? Like, if they were, um, or, like, a metaphor for anything else, like, um... Whether they represented puberty or something. Yeah, or losing hope with your world, or, um, you know, dealing with depression, or something on those terms, because there's the the bit at the end where she's talking to the girl in the car, and she, who's a grade younger than her, and she's just like, how, how, what, what are your coping mechanisms to get through this? Like you know, kind of in this, I know I'm going to be experiencing this next year. What tips or tricks do you have for advice? And I, I thought that that was interesting because it, that's not something you typically ask somebody who's dealing with a grieving situation. I, I've never thought about this when I was reading it, but now that you bring that up, I really loved that scene because everyone is going to go through grief and loss for the first time at some point. And 
having somebody to ask how you sort of got through it is important. Yeah. And I never sort of put that character in that position or put those scenes in that sort of position. But I think that that's, that's a good scene. Uh, the short answer, Kaylee, is I don't know. Um, I do know that the author has said that he was never interested in answering the question of what was causing the spontaneous combustion. So, like, that was never a goal of his. Um, but I, I don't know if he set out to compose a metaphor for anything specific. Okay. I mean, I think just in general YA terms, a lot of the stuff that YA lit tends to deal with can be seen as a metaphor for more typical uh, teen issues. Because, um, like, no teen is actually going to have to deal with their class spontaneously combusting, but they will probably have to deal with grief or loss or depression or feeling any of those things. So, you know, as far as uh, on that level, I'm sure that it was in some way meant to be metaphorical. Mm-hmm. The classic Buffy the Vampire Slayer situation. Explain. Um, the first couple seasons of Buffy especially were viewed a lot as delightful, phenomenal allegories for various parts of high school experiences um, where the problems were solved by stabbing someone through the heart with a stake because they're a vampire, uh, but also <laughs> like popularity and, and peer pressure and whatever. Um, it, it, was a, it was a good show where in the early seasons, as, at least, um, those two things sort of went hand in hand. Okay. My Buffy watching is spotty at best, so. Yeah, I think I maybe, maybe I've seen like an episode or two. Watch the first couple seasons. They're delightfully 90s. Eh, eh, you know, it's not like that show <laughs> needs additional love. <laughs> um, the one thing that I, I want to hit on this before we go on to the next topic is um, I thought that Scr the Scrubs did a phenomenal example. And I think, Martha, you were talking about this. Um, the idea that probably <laughs> the idea that that it's a nonlinear process. Um, Dr. Cox goes into a deep, deep, destructive depression. And then the third episode of that triptych, he is back and mostly out of it. But also, is he um, and it does a good job at sort of looking at the ripple effects. So I, I sort of do want to highlight that um, aspect as well. Spontaneous kind of hits that too a little bit. Like she, uh, Mara goes through lots of ups and downs and ins and outs. Um, so it's definitely sees seems more like a process and and a nonlinear one at that rather than like a through line. And if you guys have anything else to add to that, well, and I I find it interesting that when the two people that she's closest to in her life, um, when they both. Okay, so I know the ending is ambiguous, but Tess totally exploded at the end. Yeah. I, I um, don't think I agree, but we'll, I'll, I'll I, roll with it. I'll give it to you for now. I agree with Martha on this one. <laughs> I was one. just going to say, I think it's interesting that when um, her boyfriend explodes, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, Dylan. Yeah, right? when Dylan explodes, yeah. and then when Tess may or may not explodes, but definitely disappears in some way. Mm -hmm. Um that Mara's reaction to both of those and her um, kind of way moving forward to deal with both of those ends up being different. And I think it's because by the time you get to the end, when Tess vanishes, she is more ready to 
come to a place of acceptance and move forward. And I know that sounds weird because by the end she's like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life looking for Tess. But it's also she's going to spend the rest of her life trying to finish what Tess started, which was figuring out why they were blowing up. So it's not just this desperate hope that Tess is still alive, but it's also putting that energy towards something productive. Looking for Tess might be globetrotting for an individual, but it also might be searching for a reason. Yeah. Ooh, good. I like that. So even even just within Mara, you see kind of a... Um, a progression in how her grief changes and how the way that she deals with it evolves. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I liked that. I like that you think that Dr. Cox is back to it. And then you find out that no, he's really not. Yeah. Because people don't get over stuff. Um, sometimes ever. And that's okay. Like it's, it's more important that you learn how to deal with it. than you get over it, I think was the message of that story arc or in the the classic words of frozen conceal don't feel <laughs> but that was not healthy <laughs> no that was not healthy I, at all I, I turned frozen off 10 minutes in i was like oh great that song's for me done <laughs> i don't need to see the rest of this oh you missed a good movie man. <laughs> that, that, that's a joke i loved frozen um so i want to move on to the final topic which is i think portrayed most strongly in scrubs um, but also shows up in Spontaneous as well, which is what responsibilities do other people have towards those who are grieving? Um, and maybe responsibility is too strong a word, but how do we respond to those who are going through grief? And, um, you know, really what what is to be done um, to, to either help or to give them the space necessary? Um, you know, what, what are the, the reactions? I think it's sort of hard to tell most of the time what works for somebody that's grieving. Um, sometimes it is be left alone. Sometimes it is be there and share, you know, stories and sort of bright, try to brighten their day. And I think it's a real case-by-case -case basis. When I, I think Scrubs does what to me seems like a good example of showing that what works for some people doesn't work for others. Yeah. I really liked that about the Scrubs episodes. Like, you you have a group of people who mean well. Like, they they all they want is to do what they think is the best thing for Dr. Cox. And it's just, it's just not. And there's, frequently there's no real way of communicating that to people who are trying so hard to be good to you. Yeah. And... As, as the person who is grieving, it's like, how do you tell someone? It's like, okay, I know that you love me, but I really need you to piss off right now. Yeah. Do you think there is value in, in like, I mean, for Carla and Turk and all the other characters whose names I'm forgetting in Scrubs, do you think that the benefit that they get out of that actually outweighs the lack of benefit that they're providing to Cox? Because grief is a social experience, um, and it's obviously Cox who's grieving the most, but they're all sort of part of it as well. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I, this is obviously going to be very different in case-by-case basis. If, like, my grandmother died, you wouldn't get anything. There'd be no social benefit to you being like, oh, oh no, oh dear, um, because you don't know her. Like, so, so there is that going on. But, like, in a hospital setting where everyone is sort of involved, it does feel a little bit different. Or, like, a co-worker whom you sort of knew but weren't that close to versus a you know, a co-worker who was very close to that person who passed. Um, there, it does feel a little bit more like maybe the social aspect might have benefit in an, beyond the individual benefit. Um, I'm totally yeah. spitballing and devil's advocating here, so feel free to shoot me down. Also, that no, is very I topical think... to my situation right now. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I think you have to have respect for the way that other people grieve. Like, if if you're in that group situation, then you find the other people who need that group environment, and you leave the people alone who need to be left alone. Um, I know this isn't on the same magnitude, but, like, when my parrot died, I oh, did not want to talk R. about it. I, I know. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want sympathy from anybody because I just couldn't handle it. So I had a day where I was just like, I'm going to be super rude and write a Facebook post and tell people, like, this happened. Please don't talk to me about it because I just cannot deal with that right now. And I think, I mean, everybody was really wonderful about it and nobody talked to me about it until I brought it up. But I think that you do have to have, even in group situations like that, you have to respect that the way that other people <clears throat> grieve is going to be different from the way that you do. And you can find the other people who need the same thing that you do and work that out together. But if there are people who need to go through it by themselves, then you need then their their needs, I think, outweigh the needs. I don't know. I, I feel like people should always be focusing on taking care of themselves as individuals before worrying about, like, the group environment. I don't disagree at all. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> um, in like I, I'm, I'm going to use Scrubs as a specific example because I think that it is like it's it's a good thing that we've all like thought about, and it would be a really good classroom sort of example too for just a a thought experiment. Um, Doctor Cox is not only a friend but also a boss for many of these people. Um, the the reason that he's grieving is for something that happened on the job. So, um, every like it's all because it's scrubs. Everything is very like deeply tied to the work. It's very incestuous. Everyone knows each other, um, which is great. Like you have your deep workplace comedy friend family situation. Um, so in in that situation, there is both a like there is benefit in him dealing with his grief on an individual basis, but there's also very strong benefit on the individual, uh, on, on the collective, the group coming together, um, not only to support him as an individual, but to support him as a pillar of their institution and getting him back on his feet more quickly. So I, I, I guess this is the, like, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in a situation like this? Um, which is a little bit different because everyone is grieving differently, everyone is experiencing it differently, but it does sort of, like, fall kind of down that road. 
Well, and honestly, in a in the real world, like the world divorced <laughs> from the sort of heightened reality of Scrubs, I think that the professional thing for Dr. Cox to have done would have been to recuse himself and taken a leave of absence for a while. Like, clearly, his issues with the event had gotten so... I mean, he's a doctor, so he, in theory, should be used to dealing yeah. with death and yeah. mis- not mistakes, because I, I don't actually think that he made, I mean, he made the best call with the information that he had, um, but he should be professionally trained to deal with things like that, and if it has um, gotten to the point where he cannot function in a professional capacity, I think the responsible thing for him to have done would have been to take himself like to to um gone on a, a leave of professional absence. Um I don't think it should have been the job of his employees to recuperate him at that point. <laughs> but it's it's a sitcom. So <laughs> you know, I think that in the world of the sitcom, uh everyone handled it pretty well. You get the people who have the best of intentions and then you get JD who knows him better than anyone else and knows what to say to kind of pull him out of pull him out of the abyss that he's in yeah um so in the context of the show i think that they responded the way that they they responded the best way that they could and we're meant to see that it doesn't work because nobody really understands cox the same way that jd does and then eventually it it does uh help begin to pull him out of his depression that was a lot of words i just threw at you guys i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) I caught them. Yeah, I, I think that's a good answer is that, like, <laughs> one, it's all make-believe. Scrubs, make-believe, it, real world would have a very different reaction. It's make-believe, but again, I think it has value in showing people, like, you you can become a total mess, you can fall apart, and there will still be people who are yep. there to help you and there to support you, and I think that that kind of story does have value, Um by, by by saying it's make believe, I'm not intending to denigrate it or or diminish it. Um, I thought it was a really good look at both the safety nets that do exist and also the people who don't want them. Mm. Yeah. So, Pete, I guess ultimately, in response to your question, what responsibility do other people have uh, in regards to helping others out of their grief? It's it's. <sighs> I don't know. Part of me just wants to say, like, I'm part of me wants to say, like, if you're an adult, then they don't have any responsibility about it because you're a grown up. And then part of me is like, well, that's dumb because it it, frequently people can't deal with this stuff on their own. And that's okay. So I I don't know. (laughs) I I chose an intentionally difficult question um, with probably no right answer, but. What do you think? I've been talking a lot. Um, see, I was hoping that the two of you would just carry this conversation. I could just skirt by without actually answering. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think that Scrubs did a really good job at it. Um, spontaneous 2, Spontaneous um, presented electric a lot of... Di- yes, <laughs> Spontaneous 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, it presented a lot of different examples of ways that support can be provided to those who need it um and and that's what i enjoyed about scrubs as well 
Um, Ooh, um, I'm sorry if I may interject. Yes. I think it, I think it was interesting too how the way you grieve can change based on your situation. Like at first, Mara doesn't want hugs from her parents. She's like, no, leave me alone. I can deal with this on my own. But then she comes around and is like, yeah, actually, can I have hugs and that emotional and physical support? And that that even got to the point in in the very beginning of Spontaneous with like, we need to go to the grief counseling thing. And that's actually helpful until all of a sudden it isn't um, because of the unique situation of the book. But um, I think that same sort of idea. Um, but I, I thought that both did a really good example or a really good job of showing the many different ways that other people can provide support, whether they're the ways that an individual needs or not. Um, that's sort of a different story. And Martha, I think you are right that it, in, in most normal situations, an individual's grief is going to be one that they need to come to terms with themselves. And also figure out the support systems that they need. Um, their community should be willing and able to offer whatever forms of support are necessary. You know, bring over a bunch of hot dish so that they don't have to cook. Uh, ignore them entirely. Uh, <laughs> d talk them through whatever issues they need. Uh, go out to the bar with them. Wh whatever it might be. Um, provide that support that's necessary. But... There's lots of ways to do that. Um, and I think that's a useful thing to acknowledge and, and to represent in media. Yeah, and I think just my, I think my final point tonight is going to be that hopefully um, seeing people grieve in the media that, cons that we consume will give us the tools to be able to better effectively communicate what we need. By yeah. seeing other people go through it hopefully that will give us the language that we need to say i saw this happen this way and i think that that would help me mm -hmm. and that's all the time we have for this week's podcast uh kaylee you are leading the next episode what is our topic for next episode yeah so our next topic for our episode well hold on our topic for next episode is the hero's journey most specifically um that related to the joseph campbell sort of hero trope my homework is a delightful little 2001 flick called shrek all right and martha what is the homework you're assigning for next episode uh mine is a movie from 2014 called the book of life and i am assigning joseph campbell's hero with a thousand faces haha <laughs> just kidding that ah! would be terrible if i did that um i would kill you i, I would literally kill you <laughs> and mean, then i, I would not read it i i, I love oh. hero with a thousand faces we all have lives between now and the next episode and couldn't do it in time uh so instead i am being only ever so slightly not as terrible and assigning a chapter from the Silmarillion, uh, Baron and Luthien. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. This is mostly in honor of the fact that a entire book has come out on Baron and Luthien. Um, Again, if you tried to assign the whole book, I would, I would kill you. Yeah, I, I, I know just... my audience and I know my fellow podcasters, and so we're not doing the book. We're doing the chapter. Think of it like a very Sounds short story. Good. <laughs> 
All right. Um, so that's what we'll be talking about next week. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else fine podcasts are found. Our home on the web is homeworkpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook. I think you just search for Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. And we are at Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. You can also email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. We will read any reviews on air. We will take any emails, uh, whether you suggest a topic, we will happily take your suggestions. We will read any sort of letter you want to be sending in to us. Um, if you want to be tweeting oh. at us, tweeting topics our way, please feel free to do so. Martha, go ahead. I was going to say real fast, on that note, we did have a note left for us on our Facebook. Um, on the last, not the last episode, well, on the last full-length episode that we posted on mental health. Let me pull up the comment real fast. Come on, Facebook. Do better. Yes. Uh, we had a comment from my sister, Lizzie. Hi, Lizzie. Uh, if you guys revisit this topic in the future, I'd highly recommend the second season of the show, You're the Worst. One of the main characters has depression and goes through a pretty serious depressive episode for the last half of the second season, starting in episode seven. It's a really great depiction, both of depression, but also how the people in her life respond to it. The first two seasons are on Hulu. I think that's a great idea for a lot of reasons. Um, mental health is certainly an issue that could occupy multiple seasons of our sh or multiple episodes of our show. <laughs> or seasons so of we our will... show, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, so we will keep that in mind. Thank you for the uh, suggestion, Lizzie. Great. Um, yeah, thanks, Lizzie. Um, get your posts read on air. Uh, tweet at us, Facebook at us, email at us, rate and review us on iTunes, everywhere else that you're getting this podcast from. Um feel like I had something else to add to that, but then Lizzie derailed me, so... Sorry, I think that was actually <laughs> me. Now I'm going to blame Lizzie for that one. Um, so... Where can people find you on the I web? I was about to ask. Martha, where can people find you <laughs> on the web? Well, fine. Uh, you can find me on the web pretty much anywhere at Magical Martha. I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram. Uh, I post a lot of awesome photos, so if you're interested in books or sm cute small animals, then follow me there. All right, and Kaylee, how about you? Where can people find you on the web? You can find me at Tricky Lemon on Instagram. Um, there's lots of cat photos and knitting photos, because I'm secretly an old lady. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. So go there for my hot takes. Um, also, we really hope that you enjoyed last week's episode, a bit of an extra credit about Wonder Woman. Um, hopefully they won't be too common, but I'm sure they'll pop up from time to time as various interesting pop culture events occur. Phenomena. Phenomena, yeah. yeah can great safely one. say. Great. All right. I think that's it. You've got your homework. So we will talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed. Bye.